Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut has made significant progress to end homelessness in the state in recent years. Much of that progress under former Governor Malloy's administration happened due to support by the federal government, including the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. Today, where we live, we focus on housing as we listen back to a panel discussion I moderated for the Connecticut Coalition Against Homelessness. The conversation looked beyond simply connecting a homeless individual to housing, but to the policies that exist in local communities across the country that lead to housing insecurity. The panelists were David McGuire, the executive director of ACLU of Connecticut, Chirag Baines, the director of legal strategies at DEMOS, a policy and advocacy organization that centers on race and communities of color, and Anne Oliva, the senior policy advisor at the Corporation for Supportive Housing, where she focuses on increasing local capacity to develop a system-level response to homelessness. I started the conversation with Anne, who's the former deputy assistant secretary for special needs at HUD. So I spent the years 2007 through 2017 at the Department of Housing and Urban Development leading our homelessness efforts. And I would say that there were, you know, it it was a time of fairly intense change in our field generally. Uh, I considered myself sort of a leader for both my own team at the department, but also sort of helping to figure out with other national leaders what our movement was going to do, how we were going to approach ending homelessness. And along with U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, the National Alliance, the local folks like you all, um, we really, I think, came across a few things that fundamentally changed the way that we work. Um, and the first is to like treat people like human beings. In the, in the 10 years that I was there, I think that we saw the most drastic change from what I would call sort of a paternalistic system where people really had to prove that they deserved housing to a system where we really embraced the idea of housing first. And that, that shift allowed us to start talking about things that I think that maybe we hadn't been talking about before. And I'm incredibly proud as, a, as somebody who served in the federal government, but also as part of this movement, this larger movement that we together Um, reoriented ourselves towards like a justice approach and a humane and like person-centered approach. Uh, You lasted five months under the Trump administration. Can you talk about uh, that transition? (laughs) (laughs) Because of uh, what you just said about seeing people um, as human beings and that there should be Uh, Everyone should have the right to housing. Certainly there are certain things with the new administration where that's not first and foremost. As a career federal employee, I really struggled. Um, I struggled a lot at, uh, you know, after after the election. And for folks who are still, I'm incredibly supportive of the career staff that are sticking it out. Um, I was sort of high up in in the hierarchy. It would have been really hard for me, I think, um, as a deputy assistant secretary to, to be able to maintain the integrity that I 
needed to maintain for myself, uh, knowing that, um, that there were policies that were potentially going to be put in place that I was in direct disagreement on. Uh, and the one that made it very clear to me that uh, it was time for me to, to leave and, and figure out something else to do with my time for, for a while uh, was around the equal access and gender identity rules which is uh, some of the work that we did at the tail end of the Obama administration uh, around ensuring equal access for LGBTQ people uh, for all of our programs. And we were incredibly proud of that work. Um, and it became clear very early on in the administration that that was going to be under attack. You mentioned uh, equal access uh, for LGBTQ uh, individuals. Uh, without that rule, what was the reality for uh, this population when they needed to find shelter to be connected to services? So the, the reality in most places were, were, were two things. Sometimes there were well-meaning staff at, uh, at the front door of a shelter that was sex segregated uh, that didn't know what to do. They were unclear about how to handle um, a situation that they had not been trained on, that there was no guidance on. And um, that made it difficult for everyone. That was the best case scenario. In the worst case scenario, there was outright discrimination, there was outright um, you know, asking people to leave when they should have been accommodated. There were a lot of very terrible, and I've heard a lot of very terrible stories from people around the country who were really just trying to access life-saving overnight shelter and were denied that basic, that a basic bed for the night because of who they were. And we really wanted to tackle both of those issues. We wanted to open up the conversation make sure that folks had the training that they needed to, um, to get in order to address uh, their policies and to have policies in place that would, um, that would be open and uh, humane and that would treat people like human beings. Um, but we also wanted to make it really clear to our LGBTQ partners and to people who, um, who are marginalized in any way that we were behind them. That was the message behind that role. Uh, Chirag, I wanted to move on to you because uh, you did so much work highlighting uh, policies that criminalize uh, homeless individuals. Tell us about the work you did with the DOJ, even looking at the issues at Ferguson, Missouri, and how uh, those were addressed. I came at this issue by looking at the problem of uh, inequality and racial disparities and harm in our criminal justice system. And I actually started as a federal prosecutor. I was a federal prosecutor for four years of civil rights crimes, police brutality, hate crimes, other offenses, but with a heavy emphasis on um, assaults, sexual assaults, thefts committed by police officers and by correctional officers. Uh, and that was important work in the Obama administration. It was, uh, and it has been actually uh, longstanding there's a Reconstruction Era statute that allows the federal government to prosecute um, people who commit crimes under color of law, using or abusing their state authority. And it was very rewarding work, but it was also focused on the individual. You know, the individual who committed misconduct, and not the systems that kind of entrenched the inequality and gave rise to the over-incarceration that we see in our, in our criminal system. And so I shifted toward what we call pattern or practice work within the Justice Department. That's looking at police departments and looking at jails and prisons and looking for patterns of misconduct. 
and one of the cases that I worked quite closely on was this Ferguson case in, uh, in Missouri. And as folks in the room probably remember, August 9th, 2014, Mike Brown was shot and killed. Uh, and there was a criminal investigation opened into whether that was a uh, federal crime. There was also a civil investigation that was opened a few weeks later into whether there was a pattern of misconduct in Ferguson, Missouri. And I worked on that second investigation. Although I had been a prosecutor of, of individual criminal offenses, I then worked on the, on the civil systemic investigation. And we did end up finding excessive force, uh, unlawful stops, searches, arrests, violations of the First Amendment, racial disparities throughout all of those kinds of practices. But we also found uh, that the city of Ferguson was using its court system, actually its entire civil, uh, its entire criminal apparatus to raise revenue for the jurisdiction. They had a concerted strategy to ticket people, arrest them, issue them citations, in order to get them into the court where they would be assessed heavy fines and fees, heavy fines and then fees that would be loaded on. There was a, there was a we found internal documents showing that the city council and the judge that they hired to run the court added fees in order to boost the revenues. And their revenues went from something like $1.4 million to $2.5 million in four years, targeting jumping up to $3.1 million the following year, the fifth year, in the period of 2010 to 2015. Uh, that's, that's an enormous jump in how much you're getting from fines and fees to fund your, uh, your town. And uh, that was happening in a way, it, they were essentially drawing on the part of the community that could least afford it and also specifically the black community in Ferguson. Ferguson's a town that's about 67% black and 30% uh, white and two or 3% people of other races. And all of the police enforcement, almost all of the police enforcement was focused on the black community. Uh, and the disparities showed in, in, uh, in the police stops, who was, uh, who was arrested and what the fines and fees were that were assessed. And what we found is that people f very quickly fell into a cycle of debt and incarceration. So uh, I'll give you an example of a woman who uh, got a parking ticket for $151, $151 uh, ticket for illegal parking. She was, had struggling, uh, was struggling financially. She was experiencing homelessness and she couldn't get the money together. And she tried to make partial payments. They also wouldn't accept partial payments all the time. Uh, and if you were late, you could rack up additional charges if you missed court. She missed court uh, a number of times, or, or missed her payments a number of times, uh, and they issued failure to appear uh, warrants. They, they issued warrants, bench warrants for her, and charged her with failure to appear charges, which carried additional fines and fees when she was brought back into court. She ended up spending two spells in jail and paid when she could, and over the course of seven years, she ended up paying $550 on that original $151 charge. And she somehow still owed $541, okay? There was a $151 ticket that she paid $550 for and still owed over $500 for. Uh, and this, there were just so many stories like that of people that I interacted with in Ferguson. You know, I, got to, got, I spent a lot of time in the town. And, and Ferguson was not unique in that way. It was, this was something that happened throughout St. Louis County in lots of different parts of the country. I sometimes get nervous talking about Ferguson because it's very easy for people to think, well, we're not them. Like, they're very bad. We would never do something like that. I've since seen data from across the United States and advocacy organizations in other states um, find evidence of the same kind of thing happening in their jurisdiction. 
And um, just in another jurisdiction outside of Ferguson, there was a, a woman who uh, actually lost her job, lost her um, home, and ended up being homeless with her daughter because she couldn't pay fines and fees. And that wasn't a unique story either. She just happened to be the named plaintiff for a lawsuit that was then filed. So this was a, um, an area of focus for us that I, I came through to through the police misconduct work. Um, and I think it was just a very common and hidden practice that occurs throughout the United States. Is it still occurring? Has there been any resolution? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, yes. This is happening around the country. In Ferguson specifically, what we ended up doing was uh, issuing a findings letter where we explained all of this. We wrote this Ferguson report, you know, 105 pages documenting the problem, telling the stories. And we read every single arrest report. I, I personally read every arrest report that Ferguson had over five years, every use of force report, looked at all their court files. And we put all of that out for the public to tell the story. This didn't actually used to happen in the past, just so folks know this was an, one of the innovations of the Obama administration is to put out the results of the investigation for public consumption. And there's a bit of scrutiny that that then brings upon the Justice Department. You know, people can try to poke holes in it, and that's important as well. Uh, and we negotiated with them. They were interested in negotiating, and we ran a public process for the community to weigh in on what a resolution should look like. And we ended up negotiating a consent decree, which is a court-supervised uh, agreement, where if the jurisdiction, if the city doesn't comply with the, any, any provisions in the agreement, they can be held in contempt by the federal court. Uh, Ferguson actually backed out of it uh, on the eve of us supposing to sign it, and uh, then we sued them 18 hours later in federal court. They got back into it, and the, the consent decree is being enforced right now. There's, there was massive harm that was alleviated, but it's an ongoing process. You know, they, they are, it's slow. There are still problems in Ferguson, and that's just one town of 21,000 people in the United States. There's been amazing advocacy from around the country showing that this is a problem elsewhere, and there have been other lawsuits. There are some, uh, there's been some great leadership from state officials and city officials. There's been some innovative work done in California and Texas, some judges who are getting involved. Uh, but it's going to be a long process. It's a county-level problem and a municipal-level problem. Not a, it's not actually a federal-level problem. We were trying to use our federal tools to shine the light, to do, do, do enforcement work. We created a grant program. But you know, there's 3,100 counties in the country, and um, I don't know the number of municipalities, but you know, tens and tens of thousands. So um, it, this is one that actually has to be a grassroots solution, not a federal solution. This is where we live. Today we're listening to a recent panel discussion I moderated for the Connecticut Coalition and Homelessness. The conversation focused on ways communities can confront systemic racism and discrimination in public policy that contributes to homelessness. We've been hearing from Sharag Baines. He's the director of legal strategies at Demos. It's a policy and advocacy organization that centers on communities of color. Uh, you also worked on uh, the issue uh, so often when people don't have a place to stay, they end up, you know, standing on uh, a public street or possibly sleeping in a public park, and then they end up getting arrested, and that can be a real issue, um, a revolving door. And so I'm just curious what you can tell us about the work you did and the clarification for, uh, you know, towns and cities, uh, police departments, on the fact that this is not criminal behavior. Yeah, one of the things that the federal government can do is weigh in on these kinds of illegal questions uh, in strategic situations to 
push the law in a certain direction and to arm advocates with more tools. And that's what happened in the case that you're referring to. And I think this is a case that this community knows well, the Bellevue Boise case in Idaho. So the National Law Center for Homelessness and Poverty and Idaho Legal Aid and, and the law firm Latham and Watkins brought a lawsuit on behalf of Janet Bell challenging the anti-camping, anti-sleeping laws in Boise. Um, you know, Janet Bell was ticketed once while she, she, she herself was experiencing homelessness. She had a long history of that. She uh, was ticketed once when she was just sitting on the riverbank. Um, the law essentially said you can't be in public places uh, sleeping or otherwise being in public places uh, from sundown to sunup. And um, she, there was another time where she was rolling out her bedroll and trying to go to sleep. She didn't have a place to stay, so this was in, in, the, in public. And uh, an officer came up and ticketed her and threatened to arrest her and the other people with her. She took to uh, sleeping in the back of a pickup truck outside of the city limits in order to avoid the police. And I think this is not an uncommon experience around the country yet. Um, the National Law Center, which I have deep respect for, has done surveys of cities around the country to find out what kind of laws they have. And in a survey of 240 cities, they found that 40% of them have these anti-camping laws. More than half of these cities have anti-loitering laws and anti-panhandling laws. And uh, if you have nowhere to go, I mean, you don't have a choice. If, there are, if there's not enough shelter space in a city, um, you can either violate the law and uh, trespass on private property, uh, or you're going to end up sleeping in public. And that, that's just a very common experience. And the lawsuit that was brought was challenging the criminal enforcement of those uh, ordinances as being unconstitutional. And this was some, there was something we could actually do about this. We could, in a very strategic kind of surgical way, enter into that case and file a, a, what's called a statement of interest or sometimes called a friend of the court brief or an amicus, amicus brief and say, and we did, and we said that we agreed with the plaintiffs in that case, and we laid out the Justice Department's reasoning for uh, why that kind of enforcement is unconstitutional. And it boils down to, if you're, if you're arresting and convicting and punishing someone for sleeping in public when there's no shelter space in, uh, in the city, you are punishing them for their status of being homeless, of experiencing homelessness at that time. And there's, there's no control they have over that. And there's also no public interest in punishing someone for that. We actually encourage sleeping. Like, we want people to, to be able to sleep. So there's no, real, there's no uh, government interest at all. I, mean, I, I can say that quite conf confidently as a former prosecutor. Um, and so the, that w I think that had an impact. There were other jurisdictions that kind of reconsidered their anti-camping laws, either pulled them off the books or they were about to pass one and they decided not to. That case took a while to resolve, and actually the excellent news, April 1st this year, the case finally came to an end. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, you know, the highest court uh, uh, for the western half of the, of the country, um, decided that that legal theory was correct, and that that kind of enforcement was in violation of the Eighth Amendment. It was cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, and we made, we made great use of that kind of approach in the uh, Obama Justice Department. Um, it can also be used to ill ends, which we're seeing sometimes in the current administration. So David McGuire with ACLU Connecticut. How, how's Connecticut doing in terms of criminalization of vulnerable individuals, including those experiencing homelessness? Well, unfortunately, it's still a very real issue here in Connecticut, too. And we often get complaints about people being uh, prosecuted or cited for panhandling, for example. There are many communities that are currently considering or have recently enacted anti-panhandling ordinances which they use to try to, you know, basically push who they see as problems off the streets. 
um, we see the, the issue with um, people that are loitering, supposedly. And what ends up happening is people get uh, an infraction and they go to the community court, which sounds like a kind of warm and fuzzy place where you'll get the resources you need. Many times those folks don't have the resources to get to the court or don't have the ability to, to keep up with some of what's mandated and they ultimately become in contempt of court and bench warrants are issued. So we are seeing a real pipeline where people who are vulnerable and do not have access to resources are ending up in, in the prison system, unfortunately. Um, there are some really good movements to curb that and we at the ACLU of Connecticut have sent many uh, threatening demand letters and gotten municipalities to back off the panhandling ordinances, but one of the things we're trying to get at is uh, to end the discrimination that leads to people becoming homeless in many cases when they're re-entering from prison. Um, we know that in Connecticut and across the country, a criminal record or an arrest record is, is, is something that you can openly be discriminated against based on, so whether it be in housing or employment or education. That was David McGuire, executive director of the ACLU of Connecticut. The Smart Justice Initiative he referenced saw several of its criminal justice reform bills pass this legislative session. You're listening to Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we'll continue to listen back to a recent discussion I moderated about how policies that exist in local towns and cities across the country can lead to and sometimes worsen homelessness in communities. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Homelessness doesn't just happen because someone loses a job and can't pay the rent or mortgage. There are multiple factors that lead to housing insecurity. They include predatory financial practices, discriminatory housing rules, criminal justice policies, and how law enforcement enforces those policies. Even inequities in health care can contribute to a person's risk of experiencing homelessness. I recently moderated a panel discussion about these barriers. It was organized by the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. The panelists were David McGuire, the executive director of ACLU of Connecticut, Sharag Baines, the director of legal strategies at DEMOS, a policy and advocacy organization that centers on race and communities of color, and Anne Oliva, the senior policy advisor at the Corporation for Supportive Housing. I continued the discussion with Anne, who's the former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Special Needs at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, when we think about uh, how to take this kind of thinking uh, to community members who aren't working uh, for these agencies, these nonprofits, to end that stigma around homelessness, this idea that they must have done something to end up uh, this way, and uh, you know, again, not wanting to, uh, I guess, uh, put out a helping hand uh, because of lack of resources or thinking that someone doesn't deserve help. So how do people break that stereotype, Anne? That's a, it's a really good question, and I think that communities around the country are, um, are getting better and better at ensuring that people with lived experience have a voice in their community, are in leadership positions, are in um, positions to really talk about these issues, both from a personal perspective, but also from an expertise perspective. Because 
at the end of the day, we all have different struggles. I, one of the things that we're, that we're thinking about is like, what does it mean to thrive in, at, at CSH? This is one of the things we're, we're struggling with. What does it mean to thrive? If you are a person who has experienced homelessness in the past, what does it mean to thrive um, in your community? What community supports need to be in place? What, um, what does it mean for you, your community, and the system that you work in for, for, um, for folks to be able to, to thrive? And I think we all have different if you were measuring it on five points on any given day, I might be doing all right on three, but on other two, there, you know, there, I might be a little bit shaky. So making sure that we have that connection and it goes back to like being respectful, treating people like you want to be treated. Um, all of those things in my mind, they connect, they connect together. Tarag, mm -hmm. did you want to add to that? I think this is a moment to be pushing very bold narratives about what is possible in our society. You know, this is a, a time where I think our values, my, I can at least speak for myself, I feel like my values are really being threatened at the federal level by this president, uh, by, the, by the policy that we're seeing in a number of states on social policy. And I think the public is open to a much more expansive vision of democracy and economic inclusion than we give them credit for. And I'm just, let's think about, like, thinking about this issue of, of housing. We actually need seven million units of affordable housing to deal with the problem of people who, are, of folks not having a place to stay who are in ex extremely low income circumstances. There's, we need another seven million to um, address the folks who are in slightly better economic circumstances. But we need seven million units of new affordable housing. And, um, we should go after that. We should put that forward. We live in a time of, of extreme wealth, but extreme wealth inequality and um, a racial wealth divide. And we should confront that and we should lead with our values and put forward these big, bold ideas. So one of the things that Demos that we're doing is putting forward a plan to get those 7 million units. And it's gonna cost $125 billion a year for 10 years. But we should put that number on the table, right? The tax cut costs more than a trillion dollars over 10 years. And that went through. So, and that's a form of federal spending. That's what we're talking about here, federal spending. So I think people should be bold and offer a vision of what true uh, inclusion looks like and what it's gonna cost. And then we have to have the conversation. Are we willing to uh, spend the money so that people can thrive, as Anne said? Yeah. I'm certainly willing and I wanna have that debate. And I think we have to lead with that vision in this moment. Uh, David, certainly uh, Connecticut is a place with uh, great uh, wealth inequality. Um, when we think about affordable housing, uh, certain towns in this state, they don't want to see that in their neighborhoods. And again, uh, you know, how do we, uh, I guess, push against that uh, resistance because of what Chirag and Anne have said, that you know, people deserve um, a chance uh, to have a life, to have shelter. Um, and oftentimes it's something as simple or difficult as zoning that keeps uh, these types of housing uh, units available. Yeah, well, I mean, some of the most vicious battles I've ever seen at the legislature were about affordable housing, about wealthy communities wanting to be able to trade away or sell their obligation to create affordable housing. So it's without a doubt a real problem. Um, and we live in a, in a state where there is extreme wealth inequality and you have at the legislature a real weight, uh, weighted 
preference in favor of suburban legislators. There are way more of them, and they have a concentration of power, um, and, they, and they vote in a block in many cases on things of this nature. So I think, I'm sure I was right, it's about being bold and innovative and then making it about people. Our slogan for smart justice is people, not prisons, and we, we really are centering people in our, in our message, and it's making a difference. It's very easy to take a fact sheet that has all the right facts and statistics on it and put that in the garbage, but when you meet someone who has been through this process, whether it be homelessness or the criminal justice system, it is transformative. Whether that, whether that legislator or your neighbor knows it, it does make a difference in their psyche and they're going to react differently when they hear or address that issue in the future. So um, we've done a really uh, very purposeful job of resourcing people that have been justice impacted by providing them not only with the financial support to be advocates, but also the mental health help and just general well-being support so that we're not just asking them to tell their stories so we can pass a bill or you know, get something moving, it's, it's to help move, yeah, to create a movement essentially. So I, I think that everyone appears on the right page. Yeah. And it, it, it's like, you have to use all of the tools that you have. I love this idea, like lead with your values, lead with your data, like your data is gonna help you make these arguments. And then also make sure that you're making the human connection. You have to do all of those things because different people respond to different arguments, right? Some, sometimes there's a cost savings argument. Sometimes there's a human argument, but you have to be prepared as a community to be able to do all of those things all of the time so that we can consistently combat um, you know, sometimes misinformation. And we've seen uh, over the last year uh, this effort uh, to make a difference, but also uh, to hold elected uh, leaders accountable when they, when people head uh, to the polls. And so I wanted to hear from you, Chirag, about efforts at Demos and other places to help people who are experiencing homelessness not lose their right to vote. Yeah, this voter registration and voter engagement is a huge part of our work at Demos. Uh, think about the 2016 election. There were 92 million people who didn't vote. Just didn't vote, 92 million people. There are 50 to 60 million people who are eligible to vote who are not even registered today. That population is disproportionately people of color and low income. So what do we do about that? Uh, one of the things that we do at Demos is we bring, a we bring litigation. We use our federal statutory and constitutional tools to try to get states to live up to their obligations, and specifically the 1993 National Voter Registration Act, uh, often referred to as Motor Voter because it applies to DMVs, requires that states provide voter registration opportunities when people are in uh, interacting with certain state agencies. So the DMV, but also public assistance agencies, so where you get your SNAP benefits, your WIC benefits, your Medicaid office, and states can designate additional offices, so advocates can get their states to designate jails, criminal justice institutions, so that people are getting voter registration on their way out, or on their way in, depending on the situation that they're in. And um, there's massive non-compliance around the country with this 1993 law. So we uh, lead with our data, as Anne said, and we collect, we send records requests, we collect information, we do on-the-ground investigation, we work with state partners to do this, to figure out if people are getting offered the opportunity to register to vote. If you update your address with the DMV, they're supposed to update your address with the Registrar of Voters, with the Secretary of State's office. And people who are experiencing homelessness are supposed to be able to register to vote. You can put down a corner, you know, a street corner, you can draw a map and 
you know, put an X and show where you live. Um, it's a little, it's more complicated than that because where do you get your voting materials? Some states have voter ID. Uh, and so, and we, we have a national program, so I'm talking more nationally instead of just about Connecticut. But there are, there are a lot of barriers, and so we try to scrutinize what's going on in each state and then send them a nice letter, or, uh, or it's a demand letter, but it's, it's polite, um, and <laughs> ask them to correct the violations. And uh, if they don't, we will sue them 90 days later. And so um, we often sue them. We're suing a number of states, Arizona, Missouri, you know, a number of other states right now over these kinds of issues. And um, a lot of people also get removed from the rolls unjustly, voter purges. Uh, we had a case that we took to the Supreme Court last term on people being removed for not voting. It's your First Amendment right to, to not vote. I would love if everybody voted. I would, you know, I encourage that. But you also could choose not to vote because you don't like the candidates, because they don't speak to you and your experience. They don't offer something that you want. Or you might miss an election because in some states it's fairly hard to, to vote because they may not have early voting, you may not be able to get work off. Um, and uh, a number of states will punish you for that. They will, if you don't vote, in, in Ohio for example, if you don't vote for um, two years, they will send you a notice and if you don't respond to that notice, they will uh, uh, purge you if you don't vote in the, in the next four years. And so if you Miss one, if you skip a, an interim non-presidential election and then you s sit out one presidential election because you maybe don't like the candidates, you could be removed from the rolls. Uh, we unfortunately lost that case five to four at the Supreme Court. So um, other strategies are also important, the direct voter engagement, other forms of litigation, but it's just a, it's an increasing strategy, actually. There's a strategy out there. It's not just neglect. There's a strategy to remove people from the rolls because the folks who are disproportionately impacted are, again, low-income people and people of color. So litigation is uh, part of the solution. We try to bring other tools as well, but it's, it's a major part of our strategy and one that we will continue to advance. David, do you know this is something that Connecticut needs to do better on, uh, getting people uh, to the polls, especially if they've uh, experienced a housing instability, maybe don't know that they're able uh, to register and make sure that this very decentralized process we have of all of these registrars, they, they know the rules too, that someone's not turned away when they show up. Oh, that's always a challenge for sure, making sure that the rules are enforced equally and that people are not screened out uh, unfairly or illegally. Um, we, a couple of years ago, brought on as a state election day registration, which is great. Um, and we have a secretary of the state that's very much about voter access and, and improving how many people are able to vote and how many vote on election day. Um, that said, if you're in line by 8 o'clock to vote, you're allowed to wait as long as you have to to get through that queue and cast your vote. For EDR, there's an impression from the Secretary of the State that if you're not registered by 8 p.m., you cannot. Um, so we are pushing aggressively to make it easier, and, and we are unfortunately one of just nine states that don't have early voting, and that will continue to be a thing that we push for. This is where we live. We're listening to a recent panel discussion I moderated for the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. The conversation focused on ways communities can confront barriers in public policy that contribute to the issue of homelessness. And I wanted to go back to something uh, each of you has really stressed, and that is leading with values. Uh, I know uh, people in the room are familiar with this proposed new HUD policy where the Trump administration has proposed this rule that would prohibit 
mixed status immigrant families from living in public and other subsidized housing. Can you talk about why this is so problematic from your perspective? Sure. Um, so I, I think it's problematic for a variety of reasons. Do folks know what we're talking about, the, the mixed status rule? So it would potentially evict uh, up to 55,000 children who are legal residents or citizens of the United States from um, their housing because they are in a household that has both citizens who are eligible for HUD uh, subsidized housing and other folks in that household. And it is, in my opinion, an incredibly sort of cruel and um, short-sighted in terms of, of federal policy. What we suspect will happen is if that were to go into play, uh, we would have evictions across the country where people and families would be then entering the homeless assistance system where there aren't those kinds of rules. Um, so I think it's, it's important for all of us across the country to pay attention to this because it will have an impact. Uh, we just have a, a few minutes left, but I wanted to circle back to uh, the people in the room, again, who are doing uh, such important work to connect uh, those who need help with services, with housing. Uh, but uh, when they're doing the work, is it also a time of reflection of processes that are being used that uh, maybe have inherent biases that may cause certain populations to be prioritized over others? And if that's the case, you know, how do they, where do they begin in terms of looking internally with how they're helping people? I'm a big fan of continuous quality improvement. Like, you can always do better, look look at, your, at the work that you're doing, see if the questions that you're asking folks make sense. Are you using the data that you're, that you're asking them to, to give to you? Um, how, are, how are you interacting with people that, that are uh, being served by your organization? I just think it's a, it's a we're always learning and it's a continuous process. And as long as we commit to that continuous process, we'll keep getting better at what we're doing. Chirag? You know, Demos has gone through uh, quite a transformation in how we do our work, and maybe I'll offer that. It, it might be, maybe there's a connection here. Uh, in the past four or five years, Demos has been going through what we call our racial equity transformation process. It's a process because it's ongoing, but it's a, it's a form of uh, self-scrutiny and also learning to try to assess, like, how do we interact with each other at work? How do we interact with our clients on the legal team, with our partners, our partner organizations? Uh, we're not a direct services organization, but we work with many partners at the state level uh, on policy issues and advocacy issues. And part of that is, is sort of academic learning about what is, what, is, what is race, the social construct of race, the history of race, and how, it's, how oppression and um, uh, uh, sort of wealth extraction and um, labor dynamics are built into that construct of race. And then it's also like noticing those dynamics as they play out in the workplace. How do we work across difference in terms of our educational background, our economic background, uh, our racial background, our immigrant status, gender, and so forth. And um, I can't give you more than that because we're still working on it. Like, but it, but it, I, it, I think it does inform how we do our work. Maybe I'll, one small way is that we have 
tried to center the leadership of people who are directly impacted much more than in the past, which is something I know the ACLU of Connecticut is, is doing. And rather than just put ourselves forth in our work, kind of step back and lift up their stories and, and let them make the decision much more often on you know, whether we should bring the case. That's actually how it is supposed to work in a legal representation, but in, in many cases it doesn't. It's the advocacy organizations that are pushing and um, kind of looking for clients to fill, fill the role. I'm going to give David McGuire uh, the hard job of closing us out uh, with some uh, words uh, to our audience members about uh, you know, what actions they should be taking, who should they be contacting as they leave t today after this conference. Well, I would say that I'm really in awe of the work that you all do every day, and you are the experts on the ground across the state, and I believe in my heart that most of the change that's going to really help and homelessness is going to happen at the state and municipal level. So really telling the story and standing in solidarity with directly impacted people is what I think needs to be done to move this, this ball up that mountain. Thanks to David McGuire, the executive director of ACLU of Connecticut, Chirag Baines, the director of legal strategies at Demos, and Anne Oliva, the senior policy advisor at the Corporation for Supportive Housing. The three panelists joined me on stage for a discussion organized by the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. After the break, we'll learn more about a net zero affordable housing proposal in the northwest corner. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The show's been hosting coffee breaks in communities around the state to learn more about the issues and stories happening where you live. During Where We Live's coffee break at Give Coffee in Canton, we heard about a proposal to build a net zero affordable housing community in Norfolk. Now, that's a town in the northwest corner that has high housing prices, in part due to a second home market. Now, the net zero affordable community is a project of the Foundation for Norf Norfolk Living, and the president of the nonprofit joins us now by phone to tell us more. Uh, Kate Briggs Johnson is also an architect and owner of Responsive Designs. Kate, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm doing well. So tell us about this proposed development. How many houses are we talking about uh, near the town center in Norfolk? When all said and done, there will be 19. Uh, phase one has got 10 houses in it. And so when we talk about net zero, tell us uh, what we mean. Yeah, net zero is a concept that I think a lot of people have a hard time getting their head about. Um, basically, it means that the house itself will consume less energy than is produced by renewable sources on site over the course of a year. So in this case, we will have solar panels on community carports, and those solar panels will provide all the electricity needed for the houses um, over the course of the year. Um, the houses will be all electric, and um, the energy use is really quite low, so we've designed them to have very low energy use, which means we don't need as much solar. It's pretty easy to make something net zero. You can build a big house with a ton of solar and call it net zero, and um, that qualifies, but in this case, we're pushing the envelope to make our energy consumption as low as possible, so our solar needs are as low as possible as well. I understand these homes are also taking into account uh, the total cost of ownership. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, the total cost of ownership includes the cost of construction, and that's something that we've been working at trying to, 
develop a system to keep the cost of construction down. Oftentimes when that happens, however, the cost of um, or the quality of materials becomes less and therefore maintenance becomes more. So the total cost of ownership takes into account the cost of construction, the cost of maintenance, and the cost of utilities. And when the cost of utilities is limited to the hookup for electric and um, also town water and town sewer, that's the extent of the cost of utilities. So that keeping that number low, keeping the cost of construction low, and providing durable um, materials, we end up creating a unit that has got very low total cost of ownership, or relatively low co total cost of ownership. When we hear about, uh, again, this proposal for net zero affordable uh, housing in Norfolk, is this uh, pretty unique for the state? To my knowledge, there are no net zero affordable housing communities in the state yet. There are a few um, houses that have been built, single one-offs that are affordable. This particular project is based off of a net zero house that tied for first place in 2015, Connecticut Net Zero Energy Challenge. And um, in this one, although it was not deemed as an affordable housing project, uh, the intention behind it was to create a shell that was um, exactly like this, um, durable materials, super energy efficient, and relatively low cost of construction. Mm -hmm. You know, when we talk about uh, housing in the state, obviously a lot of places are uh, uh, very expensive, and we know that there is a shortage of affordable housing uh, around uh, Connecticut. And so I'm curious about the buy-in uh, that uh, your nonprofit, uh, how did you get people to want to see this happen, especially so close to the town center in Norfolk? Yeah, no, I think we're, we're fortunate. Norfolk understands the importance of affordable housing. Very early, they were very early adopters of things like accessory apartments, which are an easy way to provide affordable housing. Uh, and in general, I think the community has understood the importance of it. Our first project was a renovation of five historic structures into 12 rental apartments, and that was very well received by the town. So I think the town has been supportive of, of us as a result. And I think there are a number of towns throughout Connecticut that are supportive, and we don't hear about them as much as we hear about the ones that aren't so, so supportive. Mm. When we also uh, think about so many of the uh, the different towns and uh, communities around the state, uh, population decline is an issue. And so I'm just curious how uh, this community may help bring uh, more families uh, to Norfolk and not just uh, the people who are looking to buy a second home. Exactly. And, and that's a very important part of our community that is declining pretty rapidly, both the um, young families uh, and the people who can serve as volunteers for the ambulance and the fire department. Um, and as well, we have a number of older people who would like to stay in town but really need to have um, housing that's more conducive to aging in place. And Kate, uh, before we run out of time, I'm just curious where the project stands now. Um, will the project receive uh, funding from the state? That remains to be seen. We certainly are assuming it will at some point in time. I think, as we all know, the governor's debt diet has taken effect and has resulted in um, housing funding being up in the air a little bit more. Um, it may take a little longer before we're able to make this project happen. We're working for other additional funding sources to supplement what we would be getting from the state as well. 
Uh, the timeline is we have cleared a number of permitting hurdles from the changes to the zoning regulations to include this special overlay zone, wetlands approval, and currently we're waiting for final site plan approval from the Planning and Zoning Commission. You know, some of our listeners, uh, their interest may be piqued to have something like this uh, in their community. Um, and so have you been hearing from other communities, Kate, about this proposal and how to make it scalable and workable for them? I think we're keeping our eyes open for other places to, um, to do this sort of project. We are very interested in making it something that could be done elsewhere. We feel that it really is a very good approach to providing affordable housing from a number of vantage points. At the moment, we don't have our fingers into anything else. And at the moment, uh, the proposal is uh, 10 to 12 um, affordable housing units. And so, uh, again, I would assume that there'd be a wait list uh, once this project uh, moves forward. That's right. And it'd be 10 to 19, yes. Well, Kate uh, Briggs-Johnson, again, uh, president of the Foundation for Norfolk Living, uh, telling us about this uh, really interesting uh, proposal in the town of Norfolk that's in the northwest corner, a proposed net zero affordable community. Uh, She's also an architect and owner of Responsive Designs. Kate, thanks for joining us today here on Where We Live. Lucy, thank you. Very much my pleasure. Uh, Today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff and Lydia Brown. You can learn more about the show by going to our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. And we know many of you tune in to where we live on your car radio or stream us live at wmpr.org. But if you can't listen live mornings at 9 or evenings at 7, just subscribe to where we live on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app. And be sure to follow us on Instagram, too, at where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.